Tuesday the 2nd of June, 1953, was by all accounts a damp and drizzly day in London. Many of us weren't born. There are some here that were. But probably there are none, if maybe one or two, at the most, who were in London for that day. But it was a day that was marked throughout this nation, and indeed throughout the world, because it is the date of the coronation of Queen Elizabeth II. It was the day when she was officially recognised by the nation as the sovereign, as she was crowned and enthroned. It was a day of celebration. The stories from the day tell of how people got up very early in the morning to make their way across the, the tube system and the buses to be in place to get a glimpse of this new queen. People even camped out for days beforehand just to ensure along the mile that they would have the prime location to see her. And it paid off because most people got to see her, if only for a glimpse. However, those who, who did camp out and persevered on the mile did get to see the new royal family complete on the balcony of Buckingham Palace at that day. And for the first time, the world got a glimpse of what happened at a coronation service. Around the Commonwealth and the world, it was shown on television sets, not in every house, but wherever there was one, crowds gathered round and watched this historical event. I would be very interested to see a show of hands if there is anyone who was there or who saw it on television, but that's just my history uh, looking to see who was there and how they saw it. But for many of us, we probably only get to see the archive footage of such a day. Perhaps we need to think of another drizzly day in June last year. The sun shone for the better part of it, but it was drizzly as well where Queen Elizabeth II, to celebrate her Diamond Jubilee, came to Belfast and toured the Stormont Estate. Some of you were there, I know, I saw the photos, and you seem to be having a great day waiting to catch a glimpse of the Queen coming past. I hate to tell you this, those who stayed at home saw more, probably, than you did in Stormont, but we were all waiting for the moment when we would get to see her. Even our own minister's wife found herself in a position of all of a sudden wanting to rush out onto the uh, dual carriageway to wave at uh, the Queen's procession as it went past. There was something about the day that made people want to get out and catch a glimpse of the Queen. That's probably the closest for many of us, the vast majority of us, we'll ever get to seeing the Queen. And on those days, there was music fanfares. This really was an event not to be missed. It was regal. It was important. It was definite. Everyone knew clearly what was going on. If you can, I want you to transport your mind back about 3,000 years to dust pathways and some form of cobbled streets in the city of Jerusalem for another grand procession. A procession where the hymn was sung, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it are his, for he founded it upon the seas and established it 
upon the waters. This is what was going on as I read from First Chronicles. So David and the elders of Israel and the commanders of units of a thousand went to bring up the ark of the covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with rejoicing. Because God had helped the Levites, who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, seven bulls and seven rams were sacrificed. Now David was clothed in a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who were carrying the Ark, and as were the singers, and Kenaniah, who was in charge of the singing of the choirs. David also wore a linen ephod. So all Israel brought up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouts, with the sounding of rams, horns, and trumpets, and of cymbals, and the playing of lyres and harps. As the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David dancing and celebrating, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of God and set it inside the tent that David had pitched for it, and they presented burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before God. After David had finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each Israelite man and woman. 1 Chronicles 15 and 16 tell us of the greatest day in Israel's history. They had been slaves in Egypt, waiting to get out of that bondage. They'd gone through the wilderness, waiting for the day when they would be brought into the promised land. They were brought into the promised land and they established themselves in the city of Jerusalem. But it wasn't complete until the Ark of the Covenant was placed at the center of that great city so that God would be worshipped in a permanent location. No longer was the presence of God going to be moved around from one place to the next and camped in the tabernacle. Rather, the ark was going to be set in place at the top of this hill of Jerusalem. What we read in First Chronicles And what we read in Psalm 24 as the great song of that great day for the children of Israel, it makes anything we do pale in significance with the praise and delight of these people as God is brought into their presence and into their city. There was no national anthem. There were no coronation pieces of music to be played. But there were symbols There were trumpets, there were ram horns, there were lyres. And they sang Psalm 24 as the song that welcomed the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. Psalm 24 is the next psalm that we're going to look at in our series, Songs in the Key of Life, that we started about two weeks ago. After I got home after that service starting it, someone sent me a picture And in the picture was an original LP uh, of Songs in the Key of Life by Stevie Wonder. I'm sure if you want to borrow it and relive some of those halcyon days, it'll be here for you to to borrow. Songs in the Key of Life. Some people may look at this and think, a CD so big? But anyway. Songs in the Key of Life, Stevie Wonder's 18th album, published in 1976, 
at the time when Stevie Wonder was completely disillusioned with what was going on. Last night I don't have a record player here. I have one at home and I'm hoping to listen to some of the tracks on this. But the disc of the sleeve cover has all the words printed on it of all the songs on these LPs. And whenever you read it, you get to sense the real hard grit of Stevie Wonder's angst against the government, against people not keeping to their promises, about people living in society who only cared for themselves rather than the good of society. And that's why we want to look at the Psalms, because we believe that they really are the songs for life. Whenever we read them, they're songs of of great despair, of great questioning. But they're also, as this psalm is today, songs of great celebration and joy. Because what would life be if we didn't have celebration and joy? See, God calls us as his people to be real. No veneers, no sheets pasted with glue in front of us to portray something we're really not. And in the heart of the Psalms, we get to taste and see the reality of God's people in all of life. Psalm 24 is part of a trilogy. Psalm 22 looks at the past. Psalm 23, the shepherd psalm that we looked at a few weeks ago, is a psalm for the present. If you remember back, it was a psalm for all seasons in life about how we are brought from one season to the next by God's guiding hand as we see him as the good shepherd. And now today, Psalm 24 transports us to what is to come. So, the psalm, as we come to it, is divided naturally into three sections. It begins with a statement in verses 1 and 2. It moves to questions in verses 3 to 6, and then finishes with a command in verses 7 to 10. So it begins with the statement there in verses 1 to 2. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. I get seasick. I like swimming in the sea. I like being on a bodyboard or a surfboard in the sea. But I get seasick when I'm in a boat. For me, the sea conjures up fear. Fear of sickness and ultimately fear of drowning. And it's no different for the people in biblical times. The sea was a mysterious place. It was a chaotic place. You couldn't calm the seas. The seas had their own rules of what they did and how they did it. So in Jewish thinking, the seas were a place to be avoided. A place that you should not go because you were not safe. The only hope that the Jewish people took is what we read in Genesis 2, verses 9 and 10. And God said, let the water under the sky be gathered to one place, and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land, and the gathered waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. God is the only one who could tame the water. He said, you come this far and no further. That is enough. So even though from the Jewish mind the seas cannot be calmed or controlled by any human force, 
God ultimately is the one who said, this far and no further. That is why at the start of this psalm, they say the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. This week in our church life has been quite a busy week for pastoral care with births and deaths, serious illness, and those recovering from illness. And it struck me every time I was going into one of these situations, Psalm 24 speaks volumes into it. Because whenever we firmly believe that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, that means that we are his. That means that he is our God, the God who can create calm out of the chaos of the seas is the God who loves us and is the God who says that we are his as he looks over all of creation. And so it was for these people as they welcomed God's presence in the Ark of the Covenant into the city of Jerusalem. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Nothing is beyond his reach. Paul helps us a little bit to think of it with New Testament eyes as he writes to the Colossians. He says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. I don't know if you were listening to Sunday Sequence and Radio Ulster this morning. I try to listen to it as I'm getting ready on a Sunday morning before coming out, just to hear what's going on. I have to say this morning was one of very few times where I had to turn it off because I just couldn't cope with what the world is trying to tell me to believe and how I should exercise my faith. But it doesn't matter what the world tries to tell me because the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. For he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. Folks, we can very easily see our role in society as diminishing, and it is. We've already thought about how we are a people in exile. But the hope is that our God is greater than any form of social activism against the church, against his people, and against you personally. You are the Lord's. Just as everything in the earth is his, and as Paul tells us, everything was created through him and by him as he talks of Jesus Christ. So we have the confidence as his people to say, yes, everything is his, including me and including those who would be against us. Take hope as we join with 3,000 years of God's people and their history who declare that he is the God of all of this earth. Let's move to the second section, which is about questioning. And it's all about the presence of God. So it's coming into the city, this Ark of the Covenant, that Ark that was brought out before the people and they followed it. And the question is, who may ascend the hill of the Lord and who may stand in his holy place? Quite literally, the ark was going up a hill. 
And later there would be a temple built there where the presence of God would dwell. And so the question is, well, who can go up this hill and who can stand in this holy place? See, this was completely new territory for the people of God. They followed God's leading. But now God was going to be resident in their minds in this city. So who? Who could approach his presence? So it is a natural question for these people to be asking in their understanding of God. And the simple answer is everyone. But true worship comes when we are at peace with the rest of God's family and when we have sought forgiveness for the sins that we have committed. True worship also comes when we have laid down every idol and approach God as our true God and Saviour. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord, who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. This is what the children of Israel were singing. They recognized in themselves, ironically, that they had to be this type of person to be able to approach the presence of God. Of course, we know in their history, as we have looked at many times in Scripture, they didn't get it right. But right from the beginning, they knew that it was about purity. It was about being right with God that entitled someone to ascend the hill and stand in his holy place. As we reflect on this with New Testament eyes, we are no longer in Jerusalem. There's no longer one point of worship where we believe we have to go to to be the only place to worship God. But as we look with New Testament eyes, we see our worship of God through Jesus Christ. And again, we go to Paul, who's writing this time to the Ephesians to help us out. He writes, for he himself, that is Jesus, is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we have both, uh, sorry, for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Paul is saying Jesus came for Jew and Gentile to be the reconciler to bring all peoples to God. No longer was it going to be about an exclusive community, but it was going to be inclusive as Jew and Gentile have access to the worship of God the Father. The questions that were asked 3,000 years ago are still asked today. Well, who can worship God? Who can be in that position of worship? And the answer is the same. Everyone can worship God. But it is through Jesus Christ because it is Jesus who reconciles us to God by what he did on the cross. Our worship is always accepted because of Jesus Christ. We are accepted as heirs of the promise because of Jesus Christ. The promises that the children of Israel sung 3,000 years ago, now through Jesus Christ, are waiting for us because we can ascend that hill 
we can come and be in the presence of our God. So finally we come to verses 7 to 10. And in this section we have the same statement and the same questions asked. Twice we hear, lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. And then the question asked twice, well, who is this King of glory? Or who is he, this King of glory? This is the point where the procession is reaching the city gates. Jerusalem is an ancient city. We first come across Jerusalem in Genesis chapter 14 and Abram. In those days it was called Salem. And the king of Salem was Melchizedek. And in Genesis 14 verses 18 to 20, whenever Abram is uh, encamped at Mamre, Melchizedek comes out and wants to bless Abram. The only one of all the nations and all the city-states that wanted to come and bless Abram in the name of the Most High God. This is where the journey of God's people began. And this is now the climax of where we see Psalm 24. Abram and the promise of the nation. Starting out within the view of Salem. Only to be returned a thousand or so years later. With King David bringing the Ark of the Covenant into Salem as we now know it, Jerusalem. So the answers come as to who is this king of glory. And the psalmist describes God as the great warrior king and as the Lord Almighty. This was enough for the city to allow him in. This city could never contain the full presence of God, and the people knew this. That's why those ancient doors of this ancient city are to be flung as open wide as they can be. Because no city can ever hold the full presence of God. Lift your head, you ancient doors. Be raised up so that this full presence of God may enter in. This is the presence of God coming into Jerusalem. The people knowing full well that this journey that they have been on from one generation to the next is now complete with the presence of God in this very city. God was to be worshipped because he was the people's salvation. God is to be worshipped because he had seen them through as the warrior king every foe that they faced. And he is to be worshipped because he fulfilled every promise of bringing them into a promised land where they would be able to worship at peace and the presence of God would be with them. And so in these last few verses of this psalm, this is the future. Whenever we see the context that it's not Jerusalem that we as disciples of Jesus Christ are looking to, but it's actually the new city that has been prepared for us. This is what makes this psalm about the future in that little trilogy of Psalm 22, 23 and 24. We won't be making pilgrimages to Jerusalem to worship God. No, there is a place being prepared for us where we will be taken to as God's people. And John in the Revelation gives us the image in Revelation 7. He says, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands, and they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne 
and to the Lamb. This is the picture of Psalm 24 for God's people in New Testament times. This is the city that is to come. This is the city that will open its gates to the multitudes from every language, tribe and nation who will be welcomed in because of their response to the gospel message. As God's people, what do we think about that? What do we think about that image in Revelation? Perhaps it's so far removed from what we think now that actually we we don't think about it very much. In fact, we just set it to the side and think, oh, it'll come about someday. But Psalm 24 says, no, you must think of what is to come because there is a future, there is a hope, and it's all in place because of Jesus Christ. We have a salvation God who desires us to worship him here and now in preparation for what is to come. You see, in that place, all the pain, all the tears, all the mourning, all the stress, all the disease, all the hurt, all the ambition, all the fractured relationships, all the tiredness of this world, it'll be over. And we will be welcomed in to a city prepared for us long before we were ever born or created. And our salvation God will be waiting for us to welcome us in. And we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Presbyterians aren't known for being particularly good celebrators. But Psalm 24 is a psalm of celebration. It's a psalm that says, practice now, because there's a day coming where there's a greater event, a greater celebration for all eternity, where we will be praising God in his presence. Folks, don't leave the image of revelation to sometime in the future. But get excited about it now because Psalm 24 is a song in the key of our lives as God's people waiting for the day when he will call us to be with himself. It's nothing more for me to say except I hope you get excited about that because the day is coming and every moment that passes, it's coming sooner. Let's pray. Father, we are a stiff-necked people that don't really like to celebrate too much. But you have a place prepared for us to welcome us as that stiff-necked people where we will be dancing, where we will be singing, where we will be playing instruments and bringing praise to your name. Father, this is not some spiritual high to get us through the next season in life. This is all of life and is the key in which we should be living life now. Thank you that the church is to be an image of what is to come. We know we don't do it perfectly. We know at times we get things so wrong. But in the times where as the church we do get it a little bit right, Father, give us that foretaste of what is to come as being united with all your people, being there in your presence, knowing that we are accepted and received by you. There is no greater joy in all of life than to know you as our personal God and knowing Jesus as our personal Savior. Thank you that you give us this hope.
thank you that you give us this future. Now help us to celebrate as we joyfully sing your praise. In Jesus' name, amen.